was never found. Welcome to Paranormal Prowlers podcast. It is such a beautiful fall day. Now that the humidity and summer is behind us, the air is thinner, a little more crisp and fresh, and I'm loving every damn second of it. I'm your host, Tessa Morrow, and of course the tunes you just heard is courtesy of the one and only country legend, Bobby Mackey. Trick or treat coming up soon. Well, how about a treat for this week? I have a phenomenal guest joining me. Mr. Jeff Belanger. He is a man of many talents. He has his own podcast called New England Legends. Jeff is also the researcher for Travel Channel's TV show, Ghost Adventures. He has been in several newspapers and magazines and has been a guest on many podcasts, radio shows, including mine, national television programs, and the list goes on. In addition to this, if that's not enough, folks, he's also a published author. And he releases his own calendar each year. I don't know about you guys and gals, but I'm totally stoked to hear about all the paranormal, supernatural, and haunting legends that Jeff is going to talk about. So, come on, let's dive right in. Jeff Belanger, my friend, thank you so much for joining me on this lovely fall day. It's been quite a few full moons since you and I last talked all things paranormal. Yeah, good to be back with you, Tess. Absolutely. Pleasure is all mine. So, Jeff, you know, a new year will be here soon. And I don't know about you, but I'm always in search for the most fantastic and spectacular phenomenal calendar ever uh you have any suggestions uh stonehenge (laughs) (laughs) oh wait this is where i plug my 2020 haunted new england calendar isn't it uh yeah that would be a good time right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it's been fun i've I've put out a calendar with a a photographer named frank grace he's amazing i think we've done five of these now and we, we collect stories well i collect the stories and he he does the photography, and every year we, we do a whole new batch of stories and places from all over New England, creepy, haunted places that the public can actually go to. So um, it's been really fun, and the 2021 just came out. They're limited edition. We only print 350, so once they're gone, they're gone. And I can tell you, as of this morning, there's like 150 left. So in the first one month, we've sold through most of them. No way. That is awesome. Well, congratulations. I definitely will have to get another one this year. You know, Jeff, my sister got me one of yours last year for my birthday, and it's a great gift that I've been enjoying all year. For instance, you guys, October dives into the curse of Black Agnes. And Jeff, since these people don't have the calendar in their hands like I do, tell them a little bit, if you will, about Black Agnes. So Black Agnes is a, uh, a legend that exists in Montpelier, Vermont. There's a, there's a big cemetery in town, and there's this one uh, monument, really, that it draws it. You kind of can't miss it when you go in there, even though there's a huge hill full of graves. This monument is absolutely huge. It's this arced you know, uh, stonework, and then you see this figure. It looks like a woman draped in a cloak. And just the look of agony on her face, and they call her Black Agnes, and she's sitting on a chair. And they say, if you sit on her lap, in one version of the story, within seven days you're going to die. Or within seven days you're going to have really bad luck. It varies 
you know, from person to person. They say her eyes glow at midnight. And it's a story that's been passed around for quite a number of years. And the uh, the thing is, the it's actually not a woman. This is the the Greek representation. It's the, the representation of the Greek god of death. And death in Greek mythology, this is the person that takes you to the banks of the river Styx. So it's not it's not like the you know wearing the cloak, carrying the sigh, the Grim Reaper figure, which is actually the guy that drives the boat. If you're talking about Greek mythology, but this is the person that would bring you from your deathbed to the edge of the river Styx. That's their job, and so it's um, it's really quite beautiful and haunting. And so many people have gone there and are freaked out by it that it's just evolved into this really you know great ghostly legend there in Montpelier, Vermont. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, I agree. It does look like a woman just staring at yeah. it, the face and the just the shape and everything. It does look like a woman. But then when I read that it was a man, I kind of looked and looked and you could kind of see it. But I'm, you know, going more with the female side there. So, Jeff, tell me, when have you ever sat on Black Agnes's <laughs> lap? <laughs> you know, I, I did not. And <laughs> I didn't because, you know, we were there. We filmed there for our PBS series. We took pictures. We did all kinds of things. And at the end of the day, I do feel that it is disrespectful to sit on funeral art. Right. Um, and, I mean, this is a monument to a person. And, you know, it's, it's, I just didn't feel like it was – not that I, I thought I would die within seven days, <laughs> per se. But then again, maybe, maybe that was part of it, right? Maybe I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to test that. <laughs> right, <laughs> I'm absolutely. Gonna, I'm just going to leave it alone and just respectfully look from a few feet away and – uh, and I'll just leave it at that. But no, I did not sit on it. But plenty of people have, and, and they did not die. But it only takes one, right? It only takes one person. Where, yeah. You know, some, some kids are out there one weekend, and someone sits on his lap, and then a few days later he dies in a car accident, right? That's all it takes. And That's right. talk about it forever. Well, it also, you know, not only that, but, you know, either you die or bad luck forever, you know? It's like, hmm, I don't want either of those. But yeah. I do agree with you, Jeff, about you know, being respectful at cemeteries. I absolutely love cemeteries and I would never, (laughs) I would never sit or anything on one of those either. But like you said, admire from a little distance and that's good with me. It's it's really interesting how people choose to be remembered. There are some funny, crazy headstones. We were at one a couple weeks ago. We, We have a new episode of the New England Legends television series coming out in like a week on Amazon Prime and then on PBS. Uh, episode seven of our series and we do this kind of like cemetery safari and one of them is this headstone in yarmouth which is on cape cod in massachusetts and it's the front of the headstone looks like any headstone you've ever seen in your life you know pretty standard size and shape and it says mary c delency whatever year she was born but she died in 1985 1985 right i mean you know parachute pants feathered hair you know rippers (laughs) 1985. So, and and, and on the, again, from the front, you wouldn't give it a second glance. But on the back of the grave, there's this inscription that says, May the curse of God be upon those in Whalingport who, without knowing me, have maliciously vilified me. May the curse of God be upon them and theirs. And you're like, whoa. Wow, yeah. <laughs> That's rough. And <laughs> we did some digging, and there's some backstory there. So this woman, Mary Delency was a poor woman she owned a humble little house and a developer came in and bought all the land around her house and wanted to put in big expensive homes and he asked her to sell and she said no so he went ahead and built those built those big homes anyway all around her Mm. then offered her top dollar for her house she still said no 
didn't really get along with her neighbors. Her neighbors didn't get along with her. And, and eventually she saved up just enough money so when she passed away she could put up this headstone. And you could say this is just sour grapes, right? It, it, forever in the afterlife. But there's Wailing Port's this expensive little community. And after she died, the house was torn down and the developer finally got what he wanted. And, and the people in Wailing Port did not like this headstone. They wanted it taken down or, or the inscription removed. And they said, no, she paid for this. It stays. That's, that is what it is. And you could say it's you know just sour grapes, a woman who didn't like it. You know the circumstances. No big deal. However, imagine you're a realtor, Tess, <laughs> and you're selling a home <laughs> right. in Wailing Port. And someone says, this is beautiful. It's in our price range. I love it. I love everything about it. I could see us living here. This is great. And you say, right, okay, one more thing I really kind of need to tell you is <laughs> So you don't hear about it from someone else. They say there's a curse. Well, what do you mean, curse? Well, there's this grave, Mary C. Delency, and here's the story, and yada, 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 <laughs> but it's just a curse. And you don't believe in curses, so you go ahead and you buy the house anyway, right? And you move in, and on move-in day, your favorite coffee cup, you drop it, and it shatters all over the kitchen floor. And you say, whoa, wait a minute, was that the curse? Is it at work now? You know, and then anything that goes wrong, you've got this scapegoat forever for as long as you live there. Right. And then not only that, but before your favorite mug fell and broke, you were walking and stubbed your toe. And it's like, wait a second, when's the last time I stubbed my toe? (laughs) And then later that day, the paper cut? Forget it. (laughs) Oh, my God, it's over. (laughs) You're doomed, right? That's three now. That's three things. And you're you're absolutely finished. (laughs) Oh, catastrophic. I tell you, Jeff. (laughs) Yeah. Curses are powerful. That's true. They are. I enjoy your podcast. We're going to be talking about that in a second. But, you know, I didn't know you had this other thing on Amazon Prime. That's pretty fantastic. And you said this is the seventh episode? Yeah. So I, it started in 2013. A producer friend and I have worked together. It's a labor of love. We both do the whole thing. I mean, he, he edits and directs. I write, host, and produce it. And it's called New England Legends. That was how this whole thing began. And we were nominated for a, an Emmy after our first episode came out. We were super stoked about that. It was it aired on PBS for a little while. And then we started producing more episodes. And then uh, they're now available on Amazon Prime. If you're a Prime member, they're free. Just uh, they're included. Go look for New England Legends. If you're not a Prime member, I think you can rent them or buy them through Amazon. It's like a 99 cent rental, I think, or $1.99 to buy it. I forget, whatever, but not much, a couple of bucks. Yeah. So yeah, so we've been we've been producing a new episode almost every year. We missed last year because everything was just so busy, but this new one is getting uploaded, you know, like right now, and it'll be available probably within a week. So by the 10th or so of October, it should be available. Woohoo! Well, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah congratulations on that. You're a man of uh, many talents. <laughs> yeah, thanks. No, it's a, it's such a labor of love. As you know, these stories they get into your blood. Yeah. And and I'm the kind of person where if I'm somewhere and someone says something like, "Hey, did you hear about this cursed headstone of Mary C. Delency out in Yarmouth?" Like, you know, I've just I'm one of those people that can't just hear about it. That's not enough. You know, I can't leave that alone. And I go, oh, I guess I'm going to Yarmouth, you know? Like, <laughs> I guess I'm going to go check that out. That's so, right. Uh, that researcher yeah. in you is like, uh, no, I haven't heard of it, but I I will know everything about it very soon. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm on that. I'm definitely on that. It's it's to the point now, but you know, between the show and the podcast and everything else I do, you know, people email me and they send me messages on social media all the time about, hey, have you heard about this story? 
And it's gotten to the point, and I'm forever grateful for this, by the way, I started an actual spreadsheet by state. And stuff I haven't even looked into yet, right? But just like, you know, like, you know, Weird Curse Grave, Yarmouth, Massachusetts, sent to me by email by this person on this date, and then a couple of notes. Because I know, I'll forget. Yeah. And so um, I literally have a spreadsheet of stories I'm planning to get to. So. um, Oh, that's uh, smart. Yeah, it's great. That is awesome. And you know, Jeff, so as you know, I had a radio show a while back and now I have this podcast and I'm always looking for like new things to talk about. So whenever something comes about, I'll write it on a little piece of paper, fold it up and throw it in a cup that's just full of other things. So it's like, hmm, what am I going to talk about? Okay, Hotel Chelsea. I'm talking about that this week or, you know, something different. Yeah. New England legends. I... You know, you and your co-host, Ray, you guys do a great job talking about all things bizarre. I know each episode and each subject you guys talk about is special and unique. But tell me, to date, what's your favorite legend that you have talked about and why? Uh, so there's one. Uh, we, we did it um, last month, I guess. And I, I like stories that take twists and turns, you know, uh, and true, by the way, like all of our, well, true is to the best of our knowledge, mm-hmm. right? The true, tr- true in that there's some sort of paper trail. It's not just a completely made up story. And so I love stories that take a twist and turn and, or when I find out something and I say to myself, wait a minute, wait, how does a guy like me not know this right now? You know what I mean? Like, how did yeah. I not know this before right now? And, and that's such a pa- that's such a test for me. Because if I didn't know it, then I bet a lot of people don't know it. Because I'm into this, right? right. This is what I'm always looking for. So there's a story in Rhode Island that I just adore. And I've been telling it in front of live audiences uh, this month. It's one of my favorite stories now. And it's the story of Rhode Island founder Roger Williams, who's got a really interesting history. So Roger Williams started his life in England, he became a minister in the Church of England, and he felt the Church of England had way too much power. You know, they were just too powerful. And so he became a Puritan. And in the 1630s, being a Puritan in England, is that's not the place to be. So he takes a boat over to Boston and sets up shop. And they don't like his radical ideas because Roger Williams got the, has these crazy ideas like people should be free to worship whoever and however they want. And more crazy ideas like the Native Americans should have their own sovereign land. We shouldn't snatch it from them. And the most ludicrous idea he has, the one that's just insane, is that there should be a wall of separation between church and state. <laughs> and so no one in Boston wants to hear any of this. And so he goes to Plymouth, which is not very far by today's standards, but, you know an hour away if you were driving in a car Mm. and he goes to Plymouth and he sets up shop and he starts preaching there. No one wants to hear it in Plymouth either. So he goes to Salem, Massachusetts and they too are just like, look, man, you're a radical. Get out of here. And by 1635, the Massachusetts Bay Colony stands in one voice and says, you're banned. Get out. We don't want you here. So Roger Williams is upset, as you might imagine, but he also has the gift of language. And he's learned a lot of Native American tongues, especially the Narragansett Indians. Mm. And so he's, he actually will go on to uh, edit the very first dictionary of Native American words. So really? He's, you know, yeah, so he's got a good connection with that community. So when he's banned in Massachusetts Bay Colony, the folks to the south, the Narragansett, say, come on down. We got some room down here. So he goes down there and sets up a little community right at this bay, right by this, some rivers. And in the beginning, he's preaching to an empty room, but pretty soon some disenfranchised Puritans start making their way south. 
and they they start you know liking the, they they want to hear what he has to say and pretty soon this community grows and grows and he goes to England and he gets an official charter and it's a success and he's very quick to not take credit for that success he said no this is the grace of god shining down upon all of us and that's when he comes up with the perfect name for his community he said i'll call it providence because providence is what led me here so he goes on to become a governor of rhode island he lived to see so many europeans come over that the native americans were pushed off their land he saw the king phillips war more or less burn rhode island to the ground and then he watched rhode island get rebuilt and by the time he died in the 1680s I'm not saying he was completely forgotten about, but he was very much an afterthought, and there was probably not a lot of pomp and circumstance to his funeral, and he was buried in a humble little family plot in downtown Providence today. Hmm. And that might have been the end of his story, but it gets weird now. So Uh about 100 years later, some really smart guys are sitting around a room, and they're writing uh, some documents called the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And they say, hey, this guy, Roger Williams, this idea of the separation of church and state, we really like that. That's a good idea. Let's put that into these documents. Let's make sure that this country is founded on that principle, among others. And so they did. And suddenly back in Rhode Island, the legend of Roger Williams, which had been asleep for almost 100 years, gets a shot in the arm. And Rhode Island's starting to feel downright proud of the old radical guy. You know, so more time goes by. I mean, they're going to eventually name zoos after this guy and parks and colleges and all kinds of other things. He's the founder of Rhode Island. Fast forward to 1860 and they decide, you know, this guy shouldn't be in some little family plot. Let's exhume him and let's put him at a proper memorial. And so they know right where he is. They go to his family plot and it's right near this, this old ancient apple tree and there's a few stones and there's his marker. And as they dig up the body, And by the way, like all the newspapers at the time covered this, they were shocked at what they found. That apple tree, its roots had grown into his casket and through his body and more or less had devoured the remains of Roger Williams. And to quote the newspaper article, it sucked up the nutrients from his rotting corpse (laughs) and turned those nutrients into flowers and blossoms and eventually apples. And it said who knows how many neighbors and marauding boys had come in and and eaten those apples (laughs) over the many, many years. And so it's been kind of pondered how many people have eaten Roger Williams. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's not over yet. Stay with me. So the folks from the Rhode Island Historical Society in 1860, they're smart enough to recognize an opportunity. They cut up that root from the apple tree. And they pick up what's left of him, which is just like some bone fragments and some teeth. And they gather it all and they bring it back to their museum, which today sits in the the John Brown House, which is uh, Brown University right there in downtown Providence. And that's where the museum is. And I went there and it turns out so many people have asked about the tree root that ate Roger Williams that it's now on display in the lobby (laughs) right by where you check in for a tour of the museum. And you can see it. There it is, like behind. It's in like this casket-shaped, you know, display case, and it's about you know five feet tall, and it comes down at one point and splits into two forks, and there it is on display. And I said, that is just awesome. That you know, the the tree root that ate Rhode Island founder Roger Williams is right on display in your museum. And then I spoke to the curator, and I said, look, I read these newspaper articles that said there were bones and there were teeth and some other stuff, and she said, oh yeah. So what happened to that? 
She's like, well, it, it was gathered up and, and, and put into storage. I said, still in storage? She said, yeah. And I said, and let me guess, storage is, say, right below our feet in the basement of this very big, fine building. She said, well, yeah, that is where we have our storage. <laughs> and I said, okay, wait, wait. So Rhode Island founder Roger Williams is in a shoebox in your basement? Right. <laughs> and, she's, and she's like, yeah, kind of. Oh my god! <laughs> I love wow. that. Like you know, founder of Rhode Island. Everybody's heard of Rhode Island, and and, and there he is the tree root, the the remains, and that <laughs> story just kind of like I'm like I love that. I love that this man would have been forgotten, except he had good ideas, even if they were a century ahead of his time. And then ult- his ultimate fate is to be you know devoured by an apple tree. It's perfect. That's right, but he lives on through the people who have eaten those apples and the applesauce, and hey, Jeff, you want some apple pie? (laughs) Absolutely. It's a great story. um, (laughs) That is. And it's one of those things that I'm like, how did I not know that before? And, you know, the good news is now I do. That's right. Now you do. And that's interesting that his remains, or what's left of them, is just like in this little shoebox down in storage in a museum. It should be like... I don't know, shown. Well, no, they're never going to show. That's gross. Don't be gross, Tess. Um, <laughs> Come on, I mean, Jeff. The, the roots that ate him, sure. But um, <laughs> so, no, so they, uh, I, I said, well, how the heck are they not in the ground somewhere? And it was explained to me that today, if you were to find some bones, human bones, in your backyard, you're digging a garden or whatever, and you find some bones, you're supposed to call the police. The yeah. police are supposed to investigate because the police don't know, has this person been in the ground maybe a few months or, you know, hundreds of years since the Revolutionary War, Civil War, whatever, right? So they do that investigation, and if it's discovered, okay, yeah, this this is this must have been a family plot, this skeleton's been in the ground over 150 years there's obviously no crime at that point those remains need to be interred somewhere that's the that's the law yeah uh, they don't you can't just keep them you know in your backyard you can't put them on display in your house or anything like that they have to go into the ground somewhere uh, or be disposed of in some proper and respectful way 1860 there were no such laws so uh so when when roger williams was gathered up there there was nothing that you know, said he had to go anywhere. Right. And so he still isn't anywhere. And I was told, like, look, it's not like there's leg bones and arm bones. It's just like some teeth and some fragments. So there he is. Wow. Yeah, that's an incredible uh, piece of history there. And all well, pieces of history. <laughs> just kidding. And Many pieces. <laughs> but that's neat. That's neat. You were actually able to talk to somebody and locate where they are. So, Jeff, I kind of want to talk real quick about you're an author, you're a fellow author, and I always love hearing about people's books. I remember last time I asked about a certain book, I believe it was the legend tripping one, and you're like, well, that's actually one of the least popular books for some reason. (laughs) And (laughs) it sounded interesting to me, but talk about your favorite book that you've written. So, oh man, you know, it's tough because I've written 15 now, and, um, you know, each one is special for different reasons. At this point, I, I used to be a lot more prolific. Now I'm only writing books that just re- really speak to my soul for a number of reasons. One, to be perfectly frank, there's not a lot of money in books. Right. And, and I mean, I'm self-employed. I, I have a family and a house and, and a mortgage and a kid that, you know, might want to go to college one day. And so I have to do stuff that pays my bills. 
<laughs> so so I'm, I'm kind of uh, forced sometimes to, to do that. But, but once in a while, something just gets under my skin. And I think when you're a storyteller, you have to recognize, like, what's the best medium for this story? You know, some stories are perfect for a podcast, a 10-minute podcast. That's all they should be. Some stories need to be a documentary film because they're just so visual you know they need to be told that way some stories are maybe like a three-minute youtube video that you can film with your phone and say hey look at this weird little roadside oddity turns out this was placed here and everybody laughs but that's why it's there done and some of course are books where you you need the you need to stretch out in prose and be able to explore your feelings and thoughts and history and whatever else I don't know. I would say one of my favorites is uh, one of my early books called Our Haunted Lives. And that was a book where I interviewed people about various types of ghost experiences, their personal ghost experiences. And I did my best, and I say this right in the beginning, so uh, I, I did my best to rip off an old legendary newspaper man named Studs Terkel. He's long dead, but in uh, the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, he's a newspaper man. He wrote a book called Working, which if you're into interviews and when i say interviews i mean interviews about anything studs was a master he wrote he wrote a book that preserved not only the personalities of his interview subjects but the way they spoke so it's not perfect grammar but it's real you know what i mean yeah and so so i tried to do that because one of the problems with ghost books is that i always felt like the author was always putting himself or herself in the way of the story or making themselves too much a part of it too much front and center you know like like it's some reality tv show where you're i'm here and i'm talking to this person and i see this or i don't feel that so maybe it's not haunted and and i said you know these experiences aren't about me at all and so it's more it looks at first glance like a transcript where i would ask a question like tell me what happened back in december and then it's all the witness you know i want you to hear their voice i don't want to be in the way of that my questions are just to help kind of move it along and so they're all these were all audio interviews that were then transcribed and cleaned up because people if you truly transcribe someone the way they talk sometimes it's pretty tough to follow so cleaned up a little but sometimes i want you to hear the ums and the uhs because someone's really thinking about something someone's really pondering their next statement and it could i think it makes the experience more powerful so i always said it would be fun to do a book where I kind of switch back and forth in styles where I go and I can tell you about the history of a place, but when it's time to talk about a witness, I switch to that voice so you can really hear it. And, you know, who knows? Maybe that'll be a, a future book project. But, but yeah, that's, that's, one, that's a favorite because I felt like I kind of nailed the way you capture a story as an interviewer. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And, you know, there's another book that you and I talked about before who's haunting the White House, the president's mansion and the ghosts that live there. It was really interesting. I always remember that conversation about you talking about it and actually going there. Talk a little bit about that book. Yeah, so that started. It's a children's book, first of all, and uh, it's now available on Audible. Um, I narrate it and I've got voice actors and stuff. It's, it's really fun. Um, so it started because in my very first book, The World's Most Haunted Places, there was a chapter on the White House. And I said, man, this this isn't enough. There's so much more here. This this should be its own book. So that's how that was born. And I started gathering stories. I talked to presidential libraries. I got to go to the White House. And it was amazing because they were very cooperative. I spoke to the boss back then. This was, you know, this was a long time ago. 
probably 2007 when I was doing the research for it. And the, the boss is the chief usher. The chief usher is the person that about 100 employees report to at the White House. And those employees are like the butlers, the cleaning crew, the groundskeepers, folks that uh, have a job regardless of which political party's in power. New president comes in, they're still the butlers, still the ground crew, and things like that. And he had stories to share. And they were very, you know, very matter of fact, because nothing happens at the White House that hasn't been checked and double checked. So if a door shuts on its own, well, that just should never happen at the White House. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like everything's on timers and it's being watched and it's and there's guards and there's all kinds of things. And so so I think paranormal activity and discussion of it gets amplified there. And the witnesses are just so credible. You know, when you've got these folks who have been drug tested and psychologically screened and background checked and they say, yeah, I saw a ghost. I mean, that's as reliable a witness as you're ever going to find. And it turns out lots of them have stories and lots of them, you know, were willing to share. So it was really cool to, to get to go there, be inside this house, which, you know, I, I might add as a taxpayer, I am part owner of and just just kind of, you know, see it and breathe it in. It was pretty amazing. Right. Absolutely. I know it's a child's book, but I definitely want to get that book and read it for sure. And in the book, do you mention Lincoln and seeing his doppelganger? Well, yeah, that's right. Well, so Lincoln, you mean the, the premonition of his yeah. own death when he saw, saw his own reflection in the mirror? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, Lincoln is the name that comes up most often when you're talking about Ghosts of the White House. And I quote some of the old texts about the, the dreams Lincoln had about attending a funeral of the president. That's all he knew. He said, you know, who died? And I said, the president, sir. Uh, about seeing a, a strange reflection in the mirror, uh, his own, you know, when he was looking at it. And then even how Mary Todd Lincoln went on to hold seances in the White House to try to contact their son who died in the White House. Their son, Willie, died of a typhoid-like disease. And how Mary Todd Lincoln even went on to try to contact her husband after he was gone. She never stopped trying to make that contact. So his was definitely the spookiest of the presidencies. And also, when you think about it, all the presidencies, hands down, his was the most difficult. There's not even a close second, right? I mean, he's got a nation at war with itself. He, he's, he's trying to hold the, the union together through a civil war. His son dies while he's in the White House, and, and he dies for the country. He's assassinated. No, no one, no other president has had it anywhere near that tough, and, and God willing, never will. Right. So it's, I, I think he's a touchstone in a way. Absolutely. Well, you guys, so yeah, check out those books, several books Jeff wrote, and I'm going to as well. Now, Jeff, the last thing we need to talk about is Ghost Adventures. You know, you're the researcher for that show. How did it come about you becoming a researcher for one of the most popular paranormal shows out there? And how did it all begin for you? <laughs> well, so Ghost Adventures did this documentary that first aired on Sci-Fi. And I, I wasn't involved in that at all, but they used that as kind of like a pilot and said this should be a series. And so Travel Channel picked it up for eight episodes, and Zach Bagans was uh, asking around a mutual friend of ours named Dave Schrader and said, hey, I'm looking for a guy that knows haunted places all over the world who, you know, can really research stuff. And Dave said, Jeff Belanger's your guy. He's written all these books. He runs GhostVillage.com. He does all these things. And so Zach reached out and said, hey, this is what we're looking for. 
it's just going to be eight episodes on the Travel Channel. And I said, well, that'd be fun. I've never written for television. I've, I've worked, you know, newspapers, magazines, the web, books, whatever. That's just a new adventure for me. Oh, let's do it. And it was really cool to be part of something and, and get it off the ground. It was exciting, and these eight episodes came together. And they started to air, and the Travel Channel called us, like, after the second one aired and said, so how fast can you get back to work? <laughs> and, and everybody said, well, I guess tomorrow. And so that was 2008 that it first aired. And since then, um, you know, we've more or less filmed roughly two-plus episodes per month for uh, almost 11 years, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's uh, what was spo- supposed to be eight episodes is now well over 200, plus, like, miniseries, plus specials and, you know, spinoff shows. I mean, I worked on Aftershocks. I worked on Paranormal Challenge, you know, and then I've, I've also worked on other television shows not affiliated with, with Ghost Adventures. So it was it was one of those things that it just kind of caught on and, and people responded to it. And man, it's still going. So I'm grateful for the job. I'm grateful for all the fans that are keeping it going and, and that it still finds uh, energy and passion after all these years because some of those other paranormal shows man by the end they were just i'm not saying they were phoning it in but i think some of them really lose steam and i I give our our cast credit for really retaining the passion for it right absolutely yeah you guys have been at it for a long time and it is crazy to think that wow this is just supposed to be eight episodes you know that's like (laughs) what like a quarter of a season or something and so that's pretty phenomenal that several years later, well over a decade later, you're still up and at it. And so good for you guys. And, you know, Jeff, being a paranormal investigator, I know that each location is different. Each investigation is different. You could go to the same place 10 times and you're going to get 10 different, you know, uh, days of investigations and results and stuff. So Jeff, what locations that you guys have filmed at are the most memorable for you? You know, I love the big, creepy places. I, th- I think for me, if I had to pick just one, and there's a lot that are really special for very all kinds of reasons, but Penhurst Asylum, right outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is one of those places that we were the first ones to film there and investigate, and it was such a powerful history. This was a place that uh, people with mental disabilities were brought all the way up into the, the late 1970s. And the reason it was shut down is because there were atrocities taking place there in the 1970s, 1970s, wow. uh, that yeah. were, were just inhuman, right? So patients were being put in cages like dog kennels. Uh, if you bit someone more than once, they surgically removed all your teeth. It was just absolutely appalling how horrible the conditions were. It got underfunded, understaffed, overworked. People were, were getting killed. The people were dying. It was absolute hell on earth. And not fair how these people were being treated. And thankfully, this uh, reporter named Bill Baldini came in and did this expose, got the place shut down. There's now a federal law called the Pennhurst Law, which has to do with how you can and can't treat people with mental disabilities based on what happened inside those buildings. So when you go there and you know that before you even step foot in the building, it's powerful. It's a really uh, powerful and emotional place when you walk in. And... I also feel like that's a story that should haunt us. And if we can tell it again, like this place is haunted because of these things that happened, I feel like there's maybe a chance that maybe it won't happen again. That it forces America, right? Our society, even beyond America, it forces our society to to look in the mirror. And sometimes 
we don't always like what we see looking back at us in the mirror. And I say, if you don't like what's looking back at you, change it, right? Yeah. Fix it. Make it better. So next time you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I did everything I could. I did the right thing. I didn't let another Penhurst happen. And so I feel like that's a show and an episode that, that made a difference. Right, absolutely. And it is sad to see just back then how people were treated in asylums. You know, these, these places originally are to try to to help people, but it was heartbreaking seeing what those people endured, you know. It, it is something that we should never, ever forget, you know. Like you see places, places like Letchworth Village and yeah. and just so many other places, and you see these people that, well, I guess they're... They res- they're, they don't even resemble people. They're like skeletons sitting in their own feces. And just it's a horrible thing, you know. And so that's good that uh, things have obviously changed now. And a lot of times back then, a lot of people weren't even insane or anything. It just happened that, oh, you know, this person has epilepsy and we don't know what epilepsy is. We just see this person like seizuring up or whatever and, you know, or something. And by the time you are there, if you're not insane, give it a few weeks, and I'm sure you're insane then. Yeah, it's it's really, and again, the most powerful thing to me was like it was the 1970s, and yeah. the the asylum system in our country. You have to remember, you know, Ronald Reagan issued the deinstitutionalization uh, efforts in the 1980s, so all these asylums have been shut down more or less. And so that begs a question, you know, you're right, at the end, it was horrible conditions, and, and not just at, at Pennhurst, but at other places as well, mm-hmm. but at least at least they existed, and now we don't have them. So where did those people go? Well, a lot of them went to prison, because they need to be in some kind of institution, so by breaking any kind of law they can, they get to be in an institution, and, and there's structure, and, and there's some safety there. There's the homeless population. There's people that turn to drugs or alcohol. But it, it's, what are we doing? Because it's not like in 1980, people stopped having mental disabilities that needed help. Right. Um, but we stopped funding these facilities. And so to me, that's a, that's a bigger problem. You know, um, how a society takes care of the most needy of its people is is a real test of character. Absolutely. And geez, yeah, you're right. Thinking that was just in the 1970s. That wasn't long ago at all. No, not at all. Yikes. And I know sometimes, even if you just read too much, you'd be thrown in there. And I, Jeff, I don't know. I'm a bookworm. I I would have been thrown in there like yesterday (laughs) if that were the case. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it wasn't a perfect system. And, and, you know, in the 1970s, you couldn't just... There was a time a hundred years before that where a husband could have his wife uh, institutionalized just for, you know, whatever, just for PMS. Uh, or not having enough meat on the table. Yeah, right. Sweetheart, so, that steak, uh-uh. That's a 12-ounce. Yeah, right. I need an 18-er, sweetheart. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, there's the, you know, so so times have evolved. But, um, but yeah, I still think that's that's something we got to look at. You know, that's something oh, yeah. that as a society we and, – and when this country was founded – I remember we filmed at um, at a poor farm in East Bethany, New York, called Rolling Hills Asylum. Mm. And poor farms are similar to asylums, but, uh, for example, in New York, in the very beginning of, of the founding of the state, every county had to have a poor farm. They were responsible for taking care of the people in the county that 
had needs. So that could mean widows or widowers who were old and couldn't take care of themselves. It could mean mentally disabled people, um, you know, or whatever, uh, whatever it is that, or physically disabled people that just couldn't manage on their own would go there. And these facilities were meant to be self-sufficient, grow their own food, you know, stitch their own clothing and not be a big drain on the community, but the community had to take care of their own. And of course there was some abuse in that system, but at least it existed. And now that's not there either. So yeah, it's, I think through, through exploring this history, we can sort of look for possible solutions to our own problems today. Right. Absolutely. You know, Jeff, I know you guys usually have Halloween specials. What's in the books for this coming Halloween? Best day of the year, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You mean for Ghost Adventures? Yeah. Yeah. So for Ghost Adventures, and, and um, I'm free to say this because Zach's already announced it on Twitter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the It's going to be a two-hour special from The Conjuring House in Rhode Island, the house that the movie The Conjuring was based on. It's it's a pretty compelling story. It's this this famous and infamous house now because of the movie, and you're going to get to go inside and see it. And there's a new owner now, and you know hear hear the real story. It's going to be pretty amazing. Oh, that'll be phenomenal. Yeah, I know the older owners. They were just kind of like over it. I think like you know we're not a roadside attraction. This is our house. We're trying to live in it. And I know they yeah. had some issues, and so, and I could understand that completely, you know. But then I could also understand the people who are curious about it. I could see both sides, but that's I me- knew I knew her. I knew the owner. I mean, I only live about 35, 40 minutes from that house. Oh wow, and really? So, so yeah. So I knew the former owner, and she told me some horror stories after that movie came out. You know, people were just showing up at all hours of the day and night. Oh, the, geez. The, she and her husband would be sitting in the house you know, watching TV or something, and there'd be flashes oh. coming from the window. People would hold their cameras up to the window and taking pictures. Oh, geez, yeah. And, and you know, keep in mind, when that movie came out, you know, uh, the Perrin family got some money, and the people that write it and produce it and directed it got some money, but the people that live in the house now, they got nothing. Right. Right? It was just, but, but pretty soon people figured out, and thanks to the Internet, they could post, oh, here's the house, here's the address, and very shortly, it was no secret at all. And it was a real problem for the, the family that lived there. Still is. I've been to the house uh, numerous times now in the last couple months since we filmed there. And, uh, I mean, someone will just pull up, you know, practically stop on the road and, and, and like, click a picture from their car, which isn't the worst offense. I mean, that you can kind of live with, but it's still a little bit creepy. I'm, I'm grateful that the right. house I live in, no one pulls up, takes a picture, and keeps driving. That would freak me out. Yeah, me too. I uh, <laughs> I totally get that. You know, see, I didn't know people were actually walking up to windows and taking pictures. That is really eerie. If I see something cool, I just like, you know, take pictures or whatever, but I won't walk up to a, you know, private property or whatever like that and, and do that. I mean, that is uh, definitely screwing with one's privacy. And so I could definitely sympathize there for sure. If you listen to episode three of the New England Legends podcast, you can hear an interview with Roger Perrin about how the real story ended. Roger will tell you, if you go listen to the podcast, that Ed and Lorraine Warren were, were holding a seance in there to try to contact the spirits, and Roger says he was against it. And during that seance, 
his wife Carolyn was completely overtaken by by some force that lifted her up in a chair, threw her across the room. Very frightening experience. Roger went to help her, and Ed Ed Warren tried to stop him and said, "No, no, don't touch someone when they're being attacked by a spirit." And Roger punched Ed in the face, knocked out one of his tooth teeth, told him to get out of the house, and the Warrens were never welcome back again. Wow. That would make for a good ending of the movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but I guess... that's what really happened, and they were kicked out, and the parent family learned to live with their spirits, and this is Andrea wrote a book about it, House of Darkness, House of Light, um, where she talked about the transition in the beginning. There was a lot of fear, and eventually with their spirits, and, and move on. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I didn't know that that ending. So that's that is interesting. And so real quick before we end, Jeff, is there anything special on your podcast for Halloween? Yes, Woo-hoo. we are, are doing an audio tour. It has nothing to do with ghost adventures, but we've uh, we're going to kind of take you trick or treating at the Conjuring House. We've already recorded it. We went through the house and talked to the current owners about what they've experienced. So, just a little bit more in depth on history and things like that, the way we do our show. So, so that's going to be a fun Halloween special for us. Oh, that is really cool. Yeah, that yeah. is awesome. That's I uh, will definitely be tuning in and checking that out for sure. Yeah, so it's been fun. And I, I love the format of podcasting because it it allows you to really branch out, right? You're not, when you work in television, there's so much structure. You know, you have, the show can only be so many minutes and seconds long. You have breaks that you've got to take and so on. But with the podcast, you've got this theater of the mind and you get to, I mean, if, if one week we want to go 14 or 15 minutes, we can. If another week the story's kind of short and eight minutes is enough, that's okay. If we want to play songs, you know, uh, you know, we've done it. Like, we literally, there was a, a one episode, I played guitar, and my co-host, who's in, like, four different bands, sang. And, you know, we, just, we can kind of go in whatever direction the story dictates. And, and it's been so freeing to work in this, this medium of audio I, I love it and I'm, and I'm a junkie too I'm a, I'm a consumer of podcasts I listen to so many especially in October I'm on this story tour where I'm somewhere every single night and sometimes I'm driving two three hours each direction so I'm just devouring other podcasts and just love what everybody's doing out there it's such a fun medium wow yeah that is awesome and I do that too you know when I'm um I drive a lot from Colorado to North Carolina and that's a lot of hours of driving so I'm just like okay podcast here we come and you're right it is more freeing and you guys with new england legends you're awesome you and ray and so you guys listening if you haven't already a lot of you probably have but listen to new england legends they've been doing this um every single week haven't missed a week yet for what is this week one 111 weeks in a row yes it's like over two years we've never that's through holidays and october and sickness and health and vacations we've never missed Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, every week. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, Jeff, it's always a pleasure talking with you, and certainly we'll talk again. But thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. It was great to talk to you again. And he truly does do it all. You know, it is amazing that not a single week of a break when it comes to Ghost Adventures and then his podcast and his books and just so many other things so really impressive for sure did you enjoy this week's episode 
Of course you did, right? Well, check out the others. They are phenomenal as well. Be the first to listen to the newest episodes by tapping on that old subscribe button now. Go through iTunes, Deezer, Podcast Republic, Overcast, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and oh so many others. See you next week, my lovelies. I got the Merle Haggard Blues today.